0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Friday, September the 2nd, 2022. It is currently 9.31 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studios, located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, if you have a few minutes of time and you're willing to listen to me, I'm going to try to share some devotional thoughts on a passage in the book of Hebrews. Now, I've already said in a previous broadcast that currently I'm working on a study in the book of Hebrews using a new study guide from Lifeway called the Storyteller Study Guide. I think the study guide is very interesting and we we could talk all about its layout, the 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 the, the feel of the study guide, the The kind of just the look of it. I mean, we could do we could do a lot of discussion about it. I I really, I I mean, there they're obviously not, I don't agree with everything in the study guide, obviously, but I tend to look at study guides and devotional guides not so much for what they teach me, but more for what they present to me as an opportunity for me to study, right? I look at devotional guides as like, oh, okay, that's what you want me to study. For September the 2nd, that's what you want me to study for whatever day it is. Okay, thank you for telling me that. Now I'll go work on it on my own. That's how I tend to look at things. So, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter what's in the study guide. Ultimately, I'm going to just take it and use it in my direction. I'm going to go in my direction and I'm going to hopefully it's going to lead me to spending time thinking and meditating on God's word, which will hopefully have a spiritual benefit in my life. I mean, that's always the goal, right? I mean, every time we read our Bible, study the Bible, do a devotional, listen to a sermon, I mean, I think we are doing that because we want to grow spiritually. Hopefully it's not just so that we can gain knowledge, but that we can grow spiritually. I hope that is the desire, and hopefully maybe in some of the devotional thoughts I'm about to share, something, well, beneficial to your spiritual life can occur as well. But are you ready? Hebrews chapter 1. Let's just begin with the scripture. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1. In fact, let's just start in verse 1 because it'll, it'll, I think we need the context here. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days, spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So we have God who spoke in many different ways, but in the last days now speaks to us through Jesus Christ. A lot we could talk about there, a lot of a lot of theological implications, a lot of, I think, even very practical implications, but okay. And so after it goes from God, then it mentions Jesus. It gives us a little information about Jesus, that uh, he is the heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So Jesus is the heir of all things, and Jesus was obviously very instrumental in creation. Then it continues to describe Jesus in verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholdeth all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. In the midst of describing the glories of Christ, these these glorious attributes that speak of his divinity, his power, in the midst of all of this glorious description, we hear of him purging our sins and sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the first thing that caught my attention is the fact that it describes Jesus purging our sins in the midst of all of these glorious details about his character and person, so in the midst of that, that's the first, first thing that kind of caught my attention. I'm like, well, that's kind of odd. I mean, it's like all of these glorious things and he purged our sins, which is not, which seems to give a very different feeling, a very, a very different picture comes to your mind. Not, not something that is glory, glorious, but something that is horrible, something that is painful, Something that that I mean, you have sins, you have them being purged. It just gives a completely different feeling. So that's that's kind of the first thing that jumped out of me. And then just the concept that Christ purged our sins and sat down. In other words, the purging was absolutely, completely accomplished and that is a that is seen that is that is demonstrated by the fact that he sat down Think of it this way. You stand up to do something. You stand up to, in a sense, to do a work. You sit down when it is complete. Now, I know in our modern culture that a lot of people have jobs. No, I sit down to do my job because you're sitting in front of a computer or at a desk or, or so you're, you're sitting somewhere on an assembly line in a factory, whatever the case may be. I understand that there's plenty of jobs in our modern culture where you sit down. But typically, the way this is understood, just that the imagery here, is that we stand up to do something, and when the task is complete, you can finally sit down because it is finished. Jesus purged our sins to such a degree and such a complete and perfect way that he could sit down because the work of purging our sins was absolutely finished. So the fact that it's described in the midst of all of these glorious attributes, that caught my attention. And the fact that after he purged our sins, he sat down, that caught my attention. So I've been spending time just thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. And so what I want to do this morning is just do a little bit of work on this. I want to I start with the word purged, and then we're going to go to a, a classic commentary on Hebrews 1, 3, and look at what it has to say in regards to Jesus purging our sins, okay? So let's start with the word itself. Hebrews chapter one, verse three, when he had by himself, that I think that right there is of of great importance, but he by himself purged our sins. Let's look at the idea of purged our sins. If you have the Blue Letter Bible app, you know what we're getting ready to do. Let's look up the Greek word that is translated purged in Hebrews 1, 3. All right. The Greek word is this. Strong's G twenty five twelve, 12. Katharismas. 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 If you really want to break it down. Katharismas kathar ismos if you really want to break it down and remember the greek word that is translated purged here it's used 7 times two times it's used uh, it's uh, translated cleansing two times purifying one time be purged and then purge uh, and purification all right kathar uh, ismos again uh, it's used 7 times um, its strongs definition kathar ismos means a washing off, all right? Uh, an ab- an ab- 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 ablution, ablution, uh, morally, ceremonially, expiation, a cleansing, purge, purification, all right? So a washing off, this can be done in a ceremonial way as an ablution or morally an expiation. It's a cleansing, it's a purge, it's a purification, um, We can look at all the different places where it is used. Again, seven times. We won't go through all of those passages. But the outline of biblical usage for kothar ismos is this. It's a cleansing, a purification, a ritual, or washing. It's a ritual purgation. It's a washing of the Jews before and after their meals, of Levitical purification of a woman after childbirth. But here's the big one. A cleansing from the guilt of sins. Wrought by the expi- expiatory sacrifice of Christ. Kathar Ismas refers to a cleansing from the guilt of sins wrought by the exp- expiatory sacrifice of Christ. Th- that right there, I think, is very important. It's a cleansing from the guilt. We are purged from our sins, from the guilt of our sins. Our sins say we are condemned. Our sins say that we we should just walk away. We're finished. We are exiled. We are unclean. We need to leave the camp. We need to be put out. We should not look at anyone. We should not be near anyone. And we should spend a life condemned and exiled, just waiting for an eternity in hell. But Christ purged my sins. He cleansed me from all guilt. And this is done by his sacrifice. He did it by himself. Now, those other things that it can refer to, right? This idea of kothar ismas, it can refer to a like a, a ceremonial washing. It can refer to that. It can refer to a Levitical purification of women after childbirth. It has those other things. Right, uh implications and it's connected to those other things but in this particular context it goes way beyond all of that Christ purged me in fact I love the way it reads purged our sins he purged our sins the guilt from our sins have been has been removed we've been washed clean we no longer stand guilty we no longer stand condemned and they've been completely purged. That's why he sat down. It is complete. It is finished. Now this raises a lot of theological questions. We could go through them quickly. I'll just mention some of them. This gets into a whole kind of, uh, I think it it should lead to at least a, a I mean, it, let me state it this way. It should. Now, not for the purpose of this podcast episode, but it should lead to probably a very, 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 very uncomfortable discussion about redemption and about the atonement, right? Because some people, obviously, you know, within the evangelical world, believe that Christ died for the sins of the entire world. He purged the sins of the entire world. Everyone's sins have been purged. Everything is gone. However, it doesn't count until you do, until you believe. In other words, until you believe, all of your sins are there. When you believe, then that payment is is now, I guess, given to you. The only problem with that is, wait a minute. If all of my sins have been purged and all of my guilt is gone, then how, how can I go to hell? And someone said, well, because of disbelief. And then you would say, well, isn't disbelief a sin? And you say, well, yes, disbelief is a sin. Well, then Jesus purged me for that sin, so everyone should go to heaven. No, 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 not everyone goes to heaven. So did he die for everyone or not? Did he purge everyone's sins or not? And, so, and then they'll quote some scripture that seems to imply he died for the whole world. Say, so, yeah, he died for every single person. I know we're getting into particular redemption or what some call limited atonement. I know we're getting into that discussion, but it's a discussion that everyone should just have. I don't know why Christians get so nervous about that or so, like everyone loses their minds when you start talking about limited atonement. And I, I always wanted to everyone to take a deep breath and go, just think about this, okay? Just think. I know we don't like the word limited, okay? I, and when maybe particular, maybe that works better, but I just want you to just think about this for a second. First of all, everyone believes the atonement, the purging of the sins is limited in some way, shape, or form, right? Because you don't believe everyone's going to heaven. So if you don't believe everyone's going to heaven, then you limit it. You either limit the effects of it or you limit the intent of it, but you limit it in some way, shape, or form. Clearly, you don't believe Satan's sins were purged. So clearly you believe there was a limit. Okay, you don't believe it was it was for the fallen angels, right? So you clearly believe it was limited in its intent towards only humans. Now, when it comes to humans, did Christ literally actually purge all of our sins? They've all been purged. They've oh, all of the guilt's been forgiven. Well, you would say, no, 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 no. He died for everyone, but then you limit it to, well, who it affects. It only affects those who believe. So you're still limiting it in some way. Others will say, no, the intent was limited. It was intended only for those who would believe. The atonement was limited and it actually purged the sins of those who would believe or sometimes referred to as the elect. So everyone limits it. I don't know how, why everyone gets so upset about this, this teaching. Let me state it this way. Whether you believe in a limited atonement or an unlimited atonement, whether you believe Christ died for every human being who's ever existed, or he only died for the elect, guess where you're going to end up when it's all said and done? Who goes to heaven? Those who believe. Who doesn't go to heaven? Those who don't believe. So whether you believe in the atonement is limited, or you believe in the atonement is unlimited, you end up in the exact same spot. So I don't know why there's so much fighting over. Everyone believes it's limited either in its intent or in its application. Well, it's... Jesus intended to die for everyone, but it's only applied to those who believe. And the other would say, no, Jesus intended to purge the sins of those who would believe, and those he elected, and those he will call, and those he will regenerate, those he will give faith. So so I just don't understand why limited atonement is such a touchy subject, and Christians get so upset when you read this. Well, if he purged all of our sins, why does anyone go to hell? Well, some will say unbelief, and I'm like, well, or... I, and, which I do believe that is true of unbelief, but that doesn't, that doesn't, that that seems to raise the question, well, how could they go to hell if all of their sins have been paid for? Well, unbelief. Is unbelief a sin? Yes. Well, then that sin would have been taken care of. So you either have to limit, I mean, you have to at least have the discussion. I know people don't like it, but you have to have the discussion because uh, it, it's just so weird. It's like, oh, here's this. Frightening doctrine is like there's nothing frightening about it. I think it's beautiful. Christ died and literally purged the sins of those who would believe. Because that's easier for me to understand than people burning who all of their sins were paid for. Yeah, but they didn't receive it. Okay, well, so was the rejection of it and the unbelief a sin? Well, then that sin would have been, no, that sin's not included. I mean, I guess you could, you could get there, but it just seems to make more sense to me that, no, he, he died for all those the father gave him. All those the father gave him, he died for. There was a specific, specific group that he was dying for. But no matter how you look at it, you end up in the same situation. So I don't want to spend too much time on that, but... I just think that this this passage at least brings this up, all right? So, he purged our sins, and he sat down. So, if you are a believer, and as Christians, it's very important for us to see all Christians, all fellow believers, as individuals who have been completely cleansed from the guilt of their sins. Their sins have been completely washed away And removed. We are to see them not in light of their sin, but we are to see them in light of the cleansing from their guilt and cleansed from their sin. And so many, and I don't know exactly how we work that into the practical lives of everyday Christianity, because here's what I know. I sin, you sin, every, there's sin in every church. There is public sin. There's private sin. There is sin that we ignore. There's sin that we maybe focus on too much, but there's sin in every church. But every time certain public scandals happen, everyone loses their minds. It's like, well, wait a minute, we do have to... Now, I'm not saying we don't deal with it. I'm just saying, but we have to somehow add to our discussion. Their sins have been completely purged, completely forgiven. Now, we have to deal with it, but we cannot ignore the... The fact that the sins have been expiated, they've been, they've been purged, they've been, they've been removed. Now, A.W. Pink and his commentary says some of the following. He, he labels this section his expiation. Now, his expiation, and we, 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 we saw that word even in the Strong's definition. Let me go, if you look at expiatory, expiatory. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna find out in the dictionary it says to see expiate. Expiatory will take you to expiate. And if you go to expiate, it means to uh, to extinguish the guilt incurred by to extinguish the guilt. Expiate is to extinguish the guilt. So when we say that Christ was expiatory, that his sacrifice was expiatory, he extinguished the guilt. Completely extinguished it. I love that, that definition. But um, uh, A.W. Pink has the word his expiation. And this is what uh, how, he, how it reads. Here we go. When he, speaking of Christ, had by himself purged our sins. Verse 3. And then A.W. Pink says, here is something still more wondrous. Striking is it to behold the point at which the statement is introduced. The cross was the great stumbling block unto the Jews, but so far the apostle or whoever the author of Hebrews is, but so far was the author of Hebrews from apologizing for the death of the son. He here includes it among his highest glories and such indeed it was the putting away of the sins of his people was an even greater and grander work. Then was the making of the worlds or the upholding of all things by his mighty power. Now, I do like that, that it's almost like, at least in A.W. Pink's mind, that the writer of Hebrews describes all of these glorious things. He is the creator of all things. He's the upholder of all things. But almost like it leads to the climax of this, which is he purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now, you may not read it that way but i just think that there is a it's almost like that's the greater work his sacrifice for sins has brought greater glory to the godhead and greater blessing to the redeemed than have his works of creation or providence why has this wonderful and glorious being and whom all things are summed up and who is before all things Uh, the Father's delight and the Father's glory, why has this infinite light, this infinite power, this infinite majesty come down to our poor earth? For what purpose? To shine? To show forth the splendor of his majesty? To teach heavenly wisdom? To rule with just and holy right? No, he came to purge our sins. What height of glory? What depths of abasement? infinite in his majesty and infinite in his self-humiliation and in the depths of his love. What a glorious Lord and what an awful sacrifice of unspeakable love to purge our sins by himself. By himself purged our sins. This has a reference to the atonement, which which he has made. The metaphor of purging is borrowed from the language of the Mosaic economy. The Greek word is sometimes put forth, as put for the means of purging, sometimes for the act itself. Both are included here, the merits of Christ's sacrifice and the efficacy thereof. The tense of the verb, the aorist, denotes a finished work, literally having purged, Another has suggested an additional and humbling thought, which is pointed by this metaphor, the filth of our sins, which needed purging away. The contrastive and and superlative value and efficacy of Christ's sacrifice is is thus set before us. His blood is here distinguished from that of the legal and ceremonial purifications. None of them could purge away sins. All they did was to sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, not the purifying of the soul. The manner and power of his purification from the subject of the whole epistle are forms the the subject of the whole epistle. But in this short expression, by himself he purged our sins, all is summed up. By himself, the Son of God, the eternal word in humanity, himself, the priest who is sacrificed, yes, altar, and everything that is needed for full and real expiation and reconciliation. Here is fulfilled what was prefigured on the days of atonement, when atonement was made for Israel to cleanse them from all sins, and they may be clean from all their sins before the Lord. This is our great, great high priest, says unto us, you are clean this day before God from all your sins. He is the fulfillment and the reality because he is the son of God. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The church is purchased by the blood of him who is God with his own blood. Behold, the perfection of the sacrifice and the infinite dignity of the incarnate son. Sin is taking away, taken away. Well, what a wonderful thing is this and that's from a w pink there is a lot we could break down from there there's a lot we could talk about the idea of particular redemption limited atonement because he purged all of our sins well then why does anyone how can anyone be judged because all of our sins have been forgiven and then you can get into the different explanations we looked at that we looked at the concept that in the midst of all of these glorious attributes, it says he purged our sins, which is somewhat amazing, maybe demonstrating that the purging of the sin is just as much glorious as all of those other glorious things. We discussed and talked about the fact that he purged our sins and sat down, seemingly to imply that it's completely finished. It's completely accomplished. We looked at some of the things A.W. Pink had to say. But we'll just end with just some of my own thoughts. Sometimes, and I don't think this is intentional. Sometimes I feel that within Christianity, the focus again unintentional the focus is on us purging ourselves from sin us trying to be holy, us trying to be godly, us demonstrating that we're really Christians by doing enough good. There's so much focus on do this, don't do this, get rid of that sin, flee from that sin, you should be convicted by that sin, don't do this, don't do that, you're guilty of this, you're guilty of that. It seems like that there's a lot of focus within the evangelical world of us trying to expiate our own sins, that us trying to purge our own sins, that we're trying to cleanse ourselves from our own sins. And I understand that because we are called to be holy. We are called to be godly. We we, we are to try to f- turn and fight away from sin. But I think it's almost like, okay, well Jesus died for you now, now. Now the focus is on you cleansing and purging. But I think the focus always has to be on that we have been purged. We're no longer under guilt. We're no longer under condemnation. Who can lay the charge at God's elect? God is the one who justifies. We are justified. We are sanctified. We, we have been purged. We are forgiven. That is, that is true. No matter what else happens, no matter what else we do, that is absolutely a fact. Nothing, none of my actions can ever change the fact that all of my sins have been purged. All of the guilt has been removed. I am forgiven. I am I am completely holy because we didn't we're not even getting to the imputed righteousness, but all of my sins are gone. No, no matter what I do, those sins don't change the fact that all of my sins have been forgiven. They're all gone. He purged all of it and he sat down. It is complete. He doesn't have to get back up when I sin. He doesn't have to do it's all it's all taken care of. It was taken care of in one sacrificial act. That's why he's better than the Old Testament sacrifices that had to be repeated over and, over and 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 over again. All your sins are gone. And I think we spend most of our Christian lives going, okay, okay, I got to do better. I got to do better. Okay, I got to do better. Oh, I hope no one finds out about that sin. And there's guilt and there's shame and there's embarrassment and there's fear and there's intimidation that someone's going to find out that so, and then this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And what will people think? and this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And this, and this. So it's spent, we spend a lot of our Christian life, I think, because we are so focused on our own expiating our sins, our own purging our sins, that we spend most of our time covering up. Instead of saying, no, we are sinners, but all of our sins have been forgiven. They've all been purged. They're all gone. And I know you're you're saying, but you're saying live a Christian life where just everyone does what they want. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, isn't it better to live a Christian life where we all acknowledge, hey, we're all sinners, but all of our sins have been expiated. All of our sins have been purged. All of our sins have been forgiven. And that we so focus on what has been done for us in a completed way, then that, that should motivate us to strive against sin, not out of fear, guilt, and intimidation, or trying to prove that I'm saved to, to whoever the, the next spiritual authority comes along and tells me that I'm not saved, which whoever on Twitter is going to tell me I'm not saved, I said to worry about all of that, that I that I start from a position that all oh, my sins are already gone, they're already forgiven, they're already purged, they're gone, past, present, future, they're all taken care of, done. There's no sin left as, my, as far as my standing is from God. It's all done. It's completely purged. In other words, it seems like we know that, but then we operate from the position of, okay, guilt, shame, intimidation, fear. Instead of operating from, hey, all of my sins have been forgiven, it's all done, it's all gone. I I, I think we, we sometimes forget that. It doesn't seem to be the driving force. It doesn't seem to be the motivator. It doesn't seem to be the starting point. I mean, I know we say it, but I don't think we, I guess what I'm trying to say, I don't know if we, I don't know if we operate from that perspective. And then that creates a Christianity that's more more show. He purged our sins and sat down. It's done. Are we resting in that? Or are we standing up and running around trying to purge our own? I know there's a balance in Christianity, and it's easy to go from one extreme to another. You can go to another extreme where it's always about us, and it's fear and intimidation. It's all the problems that that are so... uh, I, I accounted for Christianity. But let me make it clear all of that fear, all of that intimidating, and all of that has not in any way lessened the amount of sin in Christianity. It just leads to more cover up. It just leads to more nobody can be open and honest because if you get caught, if someone finds out, then man, public humiliation, public scandal. And it's like, I don't know. Maybe it's more like, hey guys, we're all sinners just like you, but our sins have been expiated. Our sins have been purged our sins have been forgiven. we're no longer guilty because our guilt has been washed away not because we deserve it but because of the sacrifice of Christ. now because of our sins have been forgiven now we are going to seek to live a godly life but we still have a sinful nature. the guilt was I think that's another important thing we we, we probably didn't even discuss it seems the idea that we're purged from our sins pur- that our the guilt, we are purged from the guilt of our sin, but clearly our sins still remain. You you can tell me your thoughts. You can tell me your thoughts. Because I'm still processing. Again, I, t- I told you I just wanted to share some devotional thoughts. I, I didn't. This wasn't supposed to be a sermon. This is supposed to be just me talking it out this morning. But I think that's an important distinction. Maybe in the evangelical world, when it says He purged us from our sins, I wonder in a subconscious way. Um I I think in a subconscious way I think we have a tendency I think we have a tendency to see that he purged us like from our sins like he removed our sins but clearly it's not the case Clearly, I mean, 2,000 years of church history. I mean, every church, sin, 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 sin. Someone just said, after sin for the believer, if you turn to anything other than the cross and hide in Christ, we are misleading ourselves. Well, that is that is true. That is true. But it's not after the sin for the believer, or after sin for the believer, if you turn to anything. I mean, we're continually in sin, but I understand what they're saying. You know, we can't turn to anything else. But our, our sins are completely forgiven. I mean, it's, it's there. I mean, it's done. It's just a finished work. It's just a finished work. It's, it's completed. It's done. Nothing else can be done. We can't add anything to it. Nothing can subtract it from us. I mean, he purged our sins, finished, done, sat down, completed. It's over. And I know we, I know Christians all know that theoretically. I just think practically there's, there's a problem. I think, I think practically it turns into, no, you've got to expiate your your own. You've got to purge your own. You, you've got to do it. And, and so then everything is a, it becomes a facade of righteousness that ultimately will be exposed as not being, I mean, sooner or later, it always comes out no matter how godly it may be. Someone says, "Is our repenting of sin ever complete?" Well, it's never complete. I mean, if we go with Luther, the ninety-five theses, uh, it's something we do every single day because we sin every single day. I mean, it's it's we're always repenting in certain ways, but we we. That, that's why that's why we have to be careful how we understand repenting because a lot of people focus repenting on like you stop doing it but we never stop sinning so obviously we never stop repenting because we never stop sinning. I think what we have to constantly do in repenting first and foremost is we have to constantly be making sure that our that we are thinking the same thing about sin as God thinks. We see it as sin, we acknowledge it as sin, and we know we're supposed to to turn from it. So I think repenting first and foremost begins with the, with a uh, an acknowledgement that, yes, Lord, it is sin. I see this as you see it. It is wrong. Now, high probability we're going to be right back doing something similar or the same thing. We, we can deny that all day, but we can pretend all day. No, we don't. No, we don't. No, we don't. But it, it's just a fact. Sin, sin, sin. I mean, that's that's what we do. We sin continually. I wish we did not. So that's the reality. The reality, sin is always there. But the other reality, it's all been purged. It's all been taken care of. So practically, we have to start with the reality. The the spiritual reality is all my guilt, all my sin, it's all been taken care of. It's complete. So now I start from there. Nothing can change it. Not one thing, like not one action I can do can prove the purging of my sin. I can't prove my sins have been purged by my actions because my sins are purged and complete. I can't prove that. And anything I try to do to prove it would never be sufficient anyway because it would all, I would always fall short. But if we start from the fact that all of my sins have been purged, then our actions should be one more from gratitude than ingratitude. It should be one of love, not legalistic guilt and shame and humiliation, which the church has got a long long history of operating under those those rules with the the idea that somehow, well, we're going to stop, but we don't. That's why I love the Apostle Paul. Not only does he say the things he wants to do, he doesn't do, the things he doesn't want to do, he does. He literally ends that section by saying, with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh... I served the law of sin. Even Paul knew he's going to continue to serve the law of sin with his flesh. But but somehow the church has to not forget all of our sins have been purged. He sat down. It's finished. It's done. And, and he didn't purge our us. And make sure I want to, I guess I want to try to really reiterate that point. He purged us from the guilt of, He purged us from the guilt. The the guilt is, that's why the word expiate is so important. That that, that expiation, that word is so important. Let me go back to the definition of expiate because that is so important here. And because you can end up in all kinds of major uh, problems. If we go to expiate, it's to extinguish the guilt incurred by. He extinguished the guilt Our sins, we still have the sinful. He didn't purge us from the sinful nature. He didn't purge all of the sins out of our lives. He He purged us from the guilt of sin. So I'm no longer guilty. I can no longer be condemned. No one can lay a charge at the elect because God justifies. But then you look at like every church in the history of the church. Sin, sin, failure. Failure, failure, sin, thought, word, deed, action, what's done, what's left undone. But all of it's forgiven. But that forgiveness should move, that purging hopefully is the motivator. I think we I think we operate under I think Christians operate under three motivators. We are operate under the motivator of fear, shame, and, and, and guilt. And we don't want to be embarrassed and don't want to be public humiliated. We don't want to be find, found out. We don't want to be seen as a hypocrite. So it's almost like a fear intimidating kind of motivator. The second motivator is I got to prove that I'm safe. I got to prove it. 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 And I, again, I don't know how practical action proves uh, imputed. I don't know how, so, but that, that's a motivator. Or the third motivator is, In my position, I'm a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are new. I'm completely declared holy, righteous, perfect. All my sins have been forgiven. All my sins have been purged. That the motivator is love. The motivator is gratitude. The motivator is, well, like what? I think there's three ways of being motivated to live the Christian life. Gratitude, fear, or trying to, prove something, trying to pass some test, which if you're honest about any test, you're going to fail. Even like five minutes of being honest with it, you're going to fail. But yeah, the, the, someone is there repenting. So our repenting is never complete because we, we sin continually. So we constantly have to ensure that we are saying the same things about sin. We are acknowledging the same things about. We're thinking the right way about sin, and then we do continually battle against it. I mean, obviously we're going to battle. I mean, sin is sin is there. Um, hide in Christ. Put off. Put on sin. Hide. Put. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, there. There's no disagreement there. there it's a, it's a never-ending process. We, we, we rest in, I would say, rest in Christ because, because it's all done. It's finished. We constantly are trying to put off. We're constantly trying to put on. Then we sin, and then we have to rest in Christ, put off, put on. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. Yeah, that, that's, that's I, I mean, that's the never-ending, never-ending problem. Put off, put on, put off, put on. I mean, it, it's it, it, it's we 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 never we never put off long enough, and we never put on long enough. All right. Well, that this wasn't my necessarily my intention today to start this way, but um, I I've, I've been working on the Hebrews thing with uh, and uh, it's it's a study guide that I have and uh, other people have that we've been talking about it in the Discord channel. And so, um, I just that that's, that verse just jumped out at me. And so, I already talked about uh, something else from the study guide. And so, I guess probably every day, I've, if whenever I'm doing something in the study guide, I will discuss it, even though we've got so many other things to work on. We still got the Book of Amos to work on. Um, so we'll get back to that. And uh, I don't know, we got 900 other series to work on. All right, thanks, uh, thanks to uh, Seth for listening. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, it's always encouraging. And uh, to anyone else, you can contact me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. And I'll send out um, on the Church One app, I'll send out some of those quotes from A.W. Pink uh, on Hebrews because uh, there's some really good stuff there that I felt like that we read through too fast. But um, we already went 43 minutes just talking this out. But um, yeah, I'll send some of those quotes out today. So if you have your notifications on the Church One app, you'll see some of those A.W. Pink quotes showing up from the commentary because I think uh I think they're really good all right thanks for listening I'll be um, I got to do some more work on Hebrews and then um, I got to do some more work on Amos so I don't know we'll we'll see how today goes as far as live broadcasting is concerned thanks for listening you can email me newsif if at yahoo.com news at yahoo.com everyone have a great day a great uh, Labor day weekend and uh, well just have your notifications on and You can listen whenever we're live. All right, God bless.